Certain information set forth in this podcast may contain forward-looking information under applicable securities laws. These statements are not guarantees of future performance and undue reliance should not be placed on them. Although forward-looking statements contained in this presentation are based upon what management of the company believes to be reasonable assumptions, there can be no assurance that forward-looking statements will prove to be accurate. Solberry Trout and the company undertake no obligation to update forward-looking statements in this podcast if circumstances or management's estimates or opinions should change. This podcast is for general information purposes only. It is not an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell securities and does not constitute an investment advice. My name is Neil Canavan. I'm the scientific advisor to Solberry Trout, and this is the latest edition of NameTag, a podcast series that introduces healthcare investors to the people and the pipelines driving the biotech sector forward. Today, I'm speaking with Jonathan Solomon. He is the CEO and board member of Biomics. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Pleasure being here, Neil. Thank you. Right now, uh, Jonathan, first things first, uh, for the benefit of those who may not be familiar with Biomics, let's start with the elevator pitch. Here's a challenge, 60 seconds or less. Where is Biomics headquartered? How long have you been in business? And give me an idea of the kind of science you're doing there. Sure. Uh, so Biomics was founded five years ago. It is based in Israel uh, with a footprint in the U.S. Uh, the company is all about using phage, which are viruses that uh, infect and kill specific bacteria in chronic indication. And the notion that you have many conditions such as inflammatory bowel disease, cancer, which is specific bacteria driving uh, the condition and you want to take that bacteria out. Interesting. Okay. Um, now, before we dive into the, the science of all that, uh, in keeping with the mission of name tag, which is to introduce listeners to senior management, in this case, you. So we're going to talk a bit about you. Uh, you have a BS in physics from the University of Jerusalem, and this is circa 1999. So one assumes you're pretty good at math. Uh, then you went on to get your master's in electrical engineering at Tel Aviv University. This is 2005. So first uh, easy question, why electrical engineering and what did that young man think he was going to do with that degree? So actually I was part of a very special military program called Topiot back in Israel, uh, which follows a bit of the West Point model. So between 95 and 98, I was within you know officer school getting my undergrad in physics mathematics and then uh, served for another seven years in a classified unit, um, doing some very interesting things that I cannot talk about. And I managed to squeeze in uh, the degree in electrical engineering while still serving in the military. Okay, you had no idea how many times I've heard a CEO tell me they were part of a covert operation. <clears throat> that aside. <laughs> that is... All right, so now... All right, here, here comes the puzzling part, at least for me. I do a lot of these interviews. Um, so right after you get your degree, you enroll in business school and Harvard, no less. Now, you're the first CEO I've interviewed uh, that had no business experience prior to entering an MBA. So how does that work? Um, so I think I served for 10 years in the military. I felt it was plenty um, and then felt like I want to do something different. Um, so I went backpacking to New Zealand for three months, which is great. And then thought that, Hey, getting an MBA would be very cool. And some of these business school actually love, love people in the military. 
um, I remember like my first day in business school, I called my dad up and I was like, dad, everyone's talking about equity. And I was like, what is equity? What does that mean? And my dad was like, son, are you sure it's a good idea? You're spending so much money getting your MBA. You have no <laughs> idea what they're talking about. <laughs> oh man. <clears throat> well, yeah. Uh, okay. This is, yeah. So, all right. So after Harvard, you jump right into the CEO chair at a company which you co-founded, and this was called Neurophage. Now they call it uh, ProClara. This was based in Boston. Uh, so, you know, Harvard, Boston. And you ran that company for eight and a half years. You exited in 2015. Now, that's a hell of a leap, both in responsibility and science. So I have two questions related to that. The first is, how did you come upon the opportunity? And second, Assuming that phages did not come up in your military training, why did you think it would be a good fit if the core science was something you were unfamiliar with? Um, so I would break it down into two parts. In terms of responsibility, actually in my service, I had um, humongous responsibility uh, for such you know a young age. So Actually, when I did my internship between first year and second year of uh, business school and Medtronic and the kind of um, positions I could get would be like entry-level MBA, I kind of felt, you know, this is not really what I want to do. I've done things which were very impactful. I had a ton of responsibility in my military service. I want to do something a bit more extreme. Um, so, so that kind of made at least prepared me to do, to take the leap into, uh, into something more adventurous. And we've talked, you know, adventure was a key driver. One of the reasons I went to business school to begin with. And I was actually fortunate in the second year of business school to meet my business partner, Hampus Hillestrom, uh, who's a fellow MBA. And, and this is a long story, so I won't go too much details, but we actually did a field study on a new technology um, that was based on my mother's work in Tel Aviv University. Um, and that was actually the basis for uh, Neurophage. It was at an invention that came from the university, from my mother's work uh, around phage, that I bet we'll spend more time. And it turned out that my mother is actually quite a famous researcher uh, with some of the original intellectual property uh, behind therapies like aducanumab that is now in the news, it's the antibody for Alzheimer's. So mom was quite famous, and that made the leap, uh, I think, a bit safer to go into this approach. Okay, so we need mom's name now. Yeah, uh, Becca Solomon. Okay, good. We can look that up. Uh, as you mentioned, Alzheimer's. So Proclara was working to treat Alzheimer's, and this has been a notoriously hard thing to do companies crash regularly. Uh, and I have to assume you hit some pretty rough patches while you were trying to do it, but you kept at it for eight years. Why did you keep going? So I, I think, you know, like every entrepreneur, one of the advantages was I was very naive. So I just kept on going because that's what, um, what entrepreneurs do. Uh, but what made this approach very unique and, and the reason it's now um, in clinical studies is that we've discovered that the activity of our modality was not limited only to aggregates of Alzheimer's. It was also relevant for aggregates in Parkinson and even orphan diseases such as systemic amyloidosis and TTR, 
which is some of the approaches that Alnylam and some of these companies are pursuing. So we knew we had a very broad platform that we could pursue and, and explore it in clinical studies, both in Alzheimer's as well as ORFA indication. And it is extremely exciting mechanism, which is worth um, exploring and moving forward. So it sort of gave you the the opportunity to pivot if you needed to, like when, when exactly. it's not working. Okay. Uh, exactly. And- it's it's um, just if I may add, I think it's sort of interesting because it's a bit of a unifying theory. You could say, you know, a lot of diseases are because there's some sort of like breakdown in our you know garbage disposal mechanism, right? So proteins tend to aggregate. It could be proteins relevant to Alzheimer's, Parkinson, as well as other indications that just genetically produce proteins that have a higher tendency to aggregate. So it was it, it, right if there is a universal mechanism that is is common among all these indications, it could be very exciting to find a therapeutic which will be universally relevant for all these indications. Okay. Now I have two more questions, and then we're going to start to drill down on biomics work. Um, the first is general. I, I'm trying to probe a bit on your, your personality as a CEO, and that is um, General Eisenhower, our general from World War II, became president. And when asked what he thought about the job, the, the most frustrating part about the job for him is that people don't automatically do what he tells them to do, which, you know, in the military. <laughs> <laughs> so, so give me just a little flavor of how you've had to change your approach as a CEO as opposed to uh, an officer in the military. So in some aspects, because I was I did not grow up in in the regular military, but in in the special operation division, there you know you do not tell people what to do, right? So it's a lot more huh. collegial, and you expect even the youngest rookie um, to actually voice their opinion and and voice disagreement. So that part I think is is very um, is kind of the way I like managing, and I like uh, the very transparent, uh, almost democratic process of managing, right? So I know you would not naturally associate with the military, but I think that's the way uh, we grew up in in special ops. Um, I actually think the main challenge has been biology and product development in biology, because you know to produce the kind of systems that you deploy in the military. Um, is a very engineering oriented task that you can define, you know, the goals and the process and, and, and you can quickly test whether, yeah, timelines, you can understand whether something's working or not pretty quickly. Biology, like biology, is so complex. So I think that's been the biggest learning curve. Interesting. Interesting. So uh, after Proclara, you joined the board of something called MB Cure. Uh, it's not clear to me what that is. Could you just elaborate a little uh, bit? Yeah, Ambicure is actually the precursor for Biomics. So Biomics was originally oh. called Ambicure. Um, it was a company at the uh, incubator uh, that was funded by Orbimit Takeda and Johnson and Johnson. Um, and you know, I we moved back to Israel, um, and I wanted to explore and think about the opportunity. I initially joined the board, uh, and we wanted to see whether we could put together a good syndicate to move it forward. And then when we did the financing, we changed the name to Biomics. Okay, so here we go, biomics phases. Uh, Here's how I'd like to set the rest of this conversation up. First, give the listeners a brief high altitude description of what a phage is and how they work. And after that, I'm gonna relate a story about how phages came on my radar and how I was told it would be quite a challenge to base a business on phage therapy. 
So first, what's a phage? So a phage is a virus, uh, but that only infects a single bacteria. So it looks a bit like the Apollo lunar landing vehicle. I think it was called the Eagle, right? It has these landing pods, which are receptors, which are very specific to bacteria. So, you know, they're, they're, they're sort of like a lock and key mechanism. So what the receptor for one bacteria is not going to be relevant for another bacteria. So phage are very specific. Um, so think about that. If you have a phage for Klebsiella bacteria, it's not going to infect E. coli, although they're close relatives. And then you have the astronaut module that has the DNA. Once a phage actually finds its mate, right, the target bacteria, it sort of injects the DNA inside and kind of hijacks the bacteria and makes the bacteria produce a lot of phage. Um, and so when a single phage infects a single bacteria, when you wait 30 minutes, in the case of Klebsiella bacteria or E. coli, you're going to get one dead bacteria and 100 phage. If you now wait another 30 minutes, you're now going to get 100 dead bacteria and 10,000 phage. So it's an exponential weapon, which makes it so potent. And, and there's a constant you know, evolutionary struggle between phage and bacteria. So a bacteria would come out with a defense system, right? Think about CRISPR, all the excitement of gene therapy is actually the bacteria adaptive immune system against phage, right? So bacteria come up with CRISPR, now a phage is gonna come out with anti-CRISPR and so on and on, they, they kind of play and evolve. Okay, so <clears throat> now my story. So I was at the New York Academy of Sciences meeting a couple of years ago. Uh, there was a microbiome session because you know microbiomes the rage in immunology, and as part of the session, the scientist who I think was from Yale, uh, he showed some data about tweaking the microbiome of mice with phages, and this allowed them to better respond to cancer immunotherapy. So after the talk, I go up to this guy and I say, "Okay, you know, is there a company behind this work?" And he said, "Well, no." And then he said, "You know, he didn't see how the data suggested a business plan could." happen because phages are not only species specific, they're strain specific. So that, for example, my gut-based bifidobacterium is very likely a different strain that your bifidobacterium in Israel is. So he didn't see that you could have enough bottles on the shelf to give to a, a given patient. He didn't think it was practical. So Jonathan, tell me how this therapy, which would have to be highly tailored to the individual patient, how is this going to work? Right. So I think we want to produce products which are optimized and have a broad host range, right? So we definitely don't, don't want to commercialize something which is uh, personalized to the specific person, uh, at least in most of the indications that we're pursuing. Now, sometimes the biology is simpler. So in our product in acne, uh, because the, the bacteria behind acne see acne are not that diverse, uh, it's enough to have a three-phage cocktail that covers the overwhelming majority of C. acne strains from across the world, and we've tested that and actually seen that in the clinic. But to your point, in the case of the bacteria that is involved in our IBD project, Klebsiella, it's a very diverse bacteria that appears in humans, in animals, it's on the soil, has a lot of genetic uh, diversity, and it's quite a challenge. What we've seen is after almost two years' worth of work in which we've gathered um, bacteria from 500 IBD uh, patients across the world, from probably 200 uh, PSC, which is this orphan liver disease patients, any Klebsiella bacteria we could get our hands on from depositaries around the world. 
we actually did quite a lot of work and came out with a phage cocktail that has a very broad host range. Now, that is not an easy feat. That was our internal Manhattan project because this requires using new techniques of uh, accelerated evolution. It requires bioinformatics to actually analyze and understand which receptors are being mutated, where does the phage attach to the bacteria, what defense systems do the bacteria deploy. Um, actually, AI that we use in our, in our systems as well, and even synthetic uh, biology. So sometimes we'd engineer better phage, uh, and sometimes we'd actually engineer the bacteria in the host to kind of produce phage, which are broader. So it's quite an undertaking, but I feel comfortable saying that it's, it's something that is feasible. It was definitely not feasible um, even 10 years ago, but with the tools that we have today, we do see how do we manipulate biology to kind of give us that broad host range. And those are the kind of products that we want to commercialize. Okay. Now, uh, I'm starting to do a lot of work in gene therapy these days, and that obviously involves viruses. And this is a virus. Uh, you can engineer payloads into viruses. Are you doing that as well? Yes, we are. So in our first um, three programs in IBD, liver disease, and, and um, cystic fibrosis now, actually four programs, and the topic derm, we're using natural occurring phage because these have a long track history of uh, track record of safety and and you can move much faster. You don't need to do a talk study. You don't need to do healthy volunteers. And that enables us to proceed quickly to clinical studies and patients. In our cancer project, which is a bit more complex, we are actually trying to turn um, a cold tumor, meaning a tumor that doesn't respond to immunotherapy, to a hot tumor. And we're doing it via hijacking bacteria inside the tumors to produce uh, compounds that would you know, recruit the immune system. The way to do it is with a payload. Um, and we're usually, what we're doing is we're engineering phage to infect bacteria inside the tumors. And, and again, using the phage machinery, make these bacteria produce um, cytokines or GSCMCF, all kinds of compounds that actually kind of heat up and attract the immune system. So here we need to do heavy uh, synthetic biology. It's even more complex because this is the bacteria that we're going after foods of bacteria is a very complicated bacteria with a lot of defense system. So a lot of the classic tools that are out there for E. coli bacteria are actually not relevant. So that's something also that we've invested, I think, in the last three years and have made great, great progress that was recently highlighted at the ESMO conference. I'm going to touch on that in just a second, but introduce it with, uh, you mentioned bacteria associated with solid tumors, and this is a fairly recent finding in the last several years. Um, that has definitely demonstrated that bacteria can be found uh, in pancreatic uh, cancer and colon cancer and several other types. And their presence leads to particularly dire prognoses. So um, we'll get to the lead assets in a moment. Could we elaborate a bit on the ESMO data as relates to colon cancer? Yes. So as you said, I think it is recently that we're seeing more and more types of tumors that have bacteria inside of them. Uh, for us, it was important to actually validate that information and ourselves manage to isolate bacteria from tumors, and we've done that. Uh, we've seen that in colorectal cancer, almost 80% of patients have uh, foods of bacteria um, in relatively high loads. Also, I think that the point you brought up before, because phage is so specific, we need to understand the specific strains inside tumors. 
And then we've managed to identify a strain which is prevalent in the majority of these patients, which is Fusobacteria nucleatum animalis. Um, and that kind of helps us kind of focus what kind of phage we want to pursue. And that was a big step because, you know, this is only recently that we're looking at, this is almost like a substrain. And, and you know, we have phage which would infect animalis, but are not going to infect other substrain. So we want to know what we want to pursue. And lastly, was we shared, there's already progress on the engineering of, of the phage. As I said, not a simple feat uh, given this bacteria, which is novel and not a bacteria that most of the tools that you have out there is, is, are actually relevant for. Got it, got it. All right, now let's uh, talk about your pipeline. You have two lead assets in mid to late phase uh, uh, programs. One is BX001. We've mentioned this already for indicated for acne. And BX003, this is for IBD. Now, uh, first, a very general question on the nature of these treatments. Are these wild-type phage, or have you engineered both of these assets? So these are wild-type phage. Um, we felt that in the case of acne um, and IBD, uh, the product that we got had a, a wide host range and was fairly lethal. So there was no need to do synthetic biology, and you know, having naturally occurring phage allows us to move faster. Okay. So prior to the ESMO data, which we just discussed, you also had data at ASLD for the IBD program. Could you top line that for me? Yes, I think we touched upon it previously. This was mostly the progress in producing a, a wide host range uh, cocktail okay. for Klebsiella. Um, so again, I think this is the work of almost two years and 10 FTEs, you know, with bioinformatics, microbiologists, molecular biologists, um, synthetic biology. So quite a lot of work. Uh, and when we embarked on this uh, project, we weren't sure it actually going to convert. We weren't sure whether it's feasible, I think, to, to the story you had before, for such a diverse bacteria as Cultia to come out with a wide host range cocktail. Uh, but we've managed to deliver, and I think we're very excited about it. Now, for the, the acne asset, uh, this is a, a setting that I'm completely unfamiliar with, how you research it, how you trial it. Uh, just quickly, how does the clinical trial on acne work, and how long does it take for a readout? So we've kind of, um, I think we use a tried and tested framework, uh, because what we're benchmarking ourselves to are antibiotics, right? Um, topical antibiotics have been used for quite a long time in acne. They're well-established clinical studies in acne. Um, and we look, we have a phage which could, A, um, kill bacteria like topical antibiotics. Um, we know that in acne, a lot of the bacteria are very antibiotic resistant. By the way, the majority of bacteria that we source from the skin of just people in our company, right, is extremely antibiotic resistant, right? Oh, yeah. Shockingly antibiotic resistant. Um, and that's, you know, again, testimony to the amount of antibiotics which is exposed on our day-to-day -day life, right? So we said, okay, we have something, a phage, it kills bacteria. It's actually, it's a novel mechanism which is orthogonal to antibiotics. So this is gonna kill the strains which are resistant. Um, also bacteria like to kind of produce uh, a protection barrier called a biofilm. It's a sticky gamish of proteins and carbohydrates that helps them sort of a, attach to surfaces, but it also protects them from external insults such as, such as antibiotics, right? So some phage, because they're constantly fighting with bacteria, you can actually find phage that, that can break down biofilms. So we thought, hey, 
We can have something which will be equivalent to antibiotics. It's definitely going to be safer in those side effects. There are no documented side effects whatsoever with phage. Um, and it might actually be better. So let's use the framework of those clinical studies that initially in phase one are looking for target engagement, right? So are we killing the bacteria um, to a certain amount, right? So these are the shorter studies, the four-week studies. And then you go on longer studies, which are eight to 12 weeks and more patients, which are trying to look for improvement, you know, in, in the appearance of the skin um, in, in global assessment. Uh, have you presented on this lately? Do you have any uh, recent data? Yes, we have. We've disclosed in March, actually, the, the outcome of the phase one, which we have seen statistical significant reduction of bacterial count after treatment. So quite excited. Uh, we've seen a squeaky clean uh, safety profile. Um, not surprising, by the way, uh, because we know Phaedra safe. Interestingly, we're pursuing this product as a cosmetic path because we think it's, it's quite an exciting path to pursue in acne specifically. Uh, and we could do that because of the safety track record of phage. Okay, now you've, you've said safety several times and that's with topical, which, okay, I'll buy that. But systemic administration of phage, uh, what would an adverse event look like in that case? Right. So I think intuitively, um, and, you know, I've been around phage for a while, the concern I would have is some sort of an immune, adverse immune reaction, right? right. Uh, heaven forbid an anaphylaxis. Um, but there is a lot of evidence, including a, a famous case of a UCC professor that came back from Egypt with some nasty infection, went into a coma and was about to die and was um, it's a long story. His wife kind of reached out to uh, a few phage experts. He got uh, twice a day intravenous injection for phage for a few months and had no adverse effects whatsoever. Um, um, I think it was a year ago they published a paper in Nature Medicine of a cystic fibrosis patient that, again, got a very nasty infection after a lung transplant Again, you know, twice a day intravenous injection of phage for months without any adverse effects. And there are, you know, dozens of case studies by now all over the world. So as surprising as it sounds, even within, I mean, to your point, right, we would not expect any adverse effects with topical delivery or with oral delivery, right? Like when you drink a glass of water, you have phage in it. So we're yeah. exposed to these things all the time. We have phage in our gut because they live around bacteria. But so oral and topical is a no-brainer. But surprisingly, even with intravenous to date, there haven't been any documented side effects, right? One can hypothesize that maybe some phage are leaking from our gut, and that's why we have some tolerant. We don't know. Um, but I think there's general acceptance that it's a very safe modality. Okay. Um, you also have three assets I want to just touch on that are in preclinical testing, uh, one for uh, cystic fibrosis, another for atopic dermatitis, and can the colon cancer program, which we sort of already discussed. Um, when do you anticipate first-in-human testing for these programs? Right. So I would bucket, I mean, the, the cancer program is an earlier stage because of the complexity of the payload. Uh, so I think we have meaningful animal data in the beginning of 2021. But in cystic fibrosis and atopic derm, um, we're actually moving in, in what I perceive as unprecedented pace. Uh, so we literally launched these product, these two programs uh, a couple of months ago. 
And we think that within 12 to 18 months, we will have significant clinical data in patients. So that means that in a top in cystic fibrosis, we think we can complete uh, phase two by the end of 2021 um, and see whether we reduce bacteria uh, and hopefully improve some of the, you know, the breathing parameters. <clears throat> so that would be literally the end of the year. And in the atopic derm, we think we can get a clinical readout in patients, again, seeing whether we reduce the bacteria, but also improve some of the symptoms. Excellent. Um, now, another big, broad topic in the biotech field is manufacturing. So uh, how hard are these things to mass produce, and what's the shelf life of a phage? Right. So phage are, the good news, it's not that hard to produce them. Uh, it's a bacterial fermentation, so um, bacteria reproduce very quickly, and phage have evolved to kill bacteria and produce a lot more phage, right? So literally, you need to take um, a fermenter, grow a ton of bacteria in it, which is relatively straightforward, introduce your phage, you wait for a while, you're going to get a lot of dead bacteria, but much more phage, and you got to clear the debris, and you're left with your phage. In some ways, yeah. some. Um, so that's the good news. Um, it is a bit like gene therapy. You have your master value bank, right, which is the, the phage you start with, master cell bank, which is the bacteria, and that's how you kind of launch a, a fermentation. It's just much um, faster because it's bacteria reproducing, and the yields are much higher, right? So a lot of times, like in gene therapy, you will need a 250-liter fermenter to have a single dose, right? We probably, with a 50-liter fermenter, have enough material for phase two. Um, so that's good. Um, I would say there's two complexities that one needs to take into account. First is that the product is always a cocktail. So we always use more than one phage. So that means that you have to repeat the process a few times for the different phage in the cocktail. And you have to characterize each one separately while in the cocktail. So all the release assays are multiplied. So that's one complexity. Again, these days with metagenomics, it's it's very reasonable. So you can you can move forward, but just got to take that into account. The second point is there are not that many vendors out there that actually want to do phage, right? It's not an accepted modality, and I think we're very proud of a decision we took um, in January to actually have in-house manufacturing, uh, and that basically allows us to move very quickly and have this kind of flexibility. And I think again, going back to the analogy of gene therapy, it's a lot of what the gene therapy players um, have have done as well, right? Kind of keep the manufacturing in-house, kind of control it. And the shelf life? So shelf life in room temperature, it, I'm sorry, in, in refrigeration, two to eight degrees, um, you know, is north of a year. Uh, but the end goal here, so that's, that's good. Um, it's definitely not a COVID vaccine that needs to be in minus 80. Um, but what you could do here is actually lyophilize it and keep it in dry powder, and then it's much more stable. Right. Okay. Um, now, uh, I'm assuming, or I'm just going to ask, are these assets, the IP, is all in-house? Yes. I mean, some of it is licensed. We have a great collaboration with the Weizmann Institute, who are the scientific founders, uh, with Tim Liu at MIT, um, some of the exciting targets in inflammatory bowel disease and PSC come from uh, two researchers in Japan. Uh, so some of it is licensed, some of it is in-house, uh, but definitely holding a close, tightly uh, knit ownership. Okay. 
So finally, money, that's why we're here. Uh, I, the latest, uh, I know, maybe not the latest, but the one I'm aware of, you, you participated in a SPAC last year for about 60 million. Uh, so my question is, uh, have there been additional rounds since then? What kind of runway uh, do you have right now? And then to round out, uh, JP Morgan Virtual is coming up. Whether that means anything or not, I don't know. But what sort of conversations are you looking to have in the near term with investors? Sure. Um, so the company to date has raised $120 million. Uh, the first rounds of financing were supported by Ordman Takeda, Johnson Johnson, and a few other uh, investors. Then um, last year we did the SPAC. That actually provides us enough cash until the end of 2022. So we're well financed to deliver on all of these outcomes. Um, I do think there's been a big progress in our pipeline and, and there will be a lot of exciting inflection points. I mean, literally by adding cystic fibrosis and atopic derm, we've doubled our clinical pipeline um, that will have substantial inflection points um, in the next 12 to 18 months. Um, JP Morgan, I think we're all kind of scratching our heads to understand how will it really be in COVID days. Uh, but for us, this is a great timing because we do want to engage and, and talk to potential partners and investors uh, because we feel that the platform is mature and, and we now have substantial inflection point, a lot of shots on goal. And, and again, you can actually broaden it. There are very few, I think, platforms in biotech that you have a modality that is safe. It actually works, right? Phage kill bacteria. This is what they do. Uh, but it's about overcoming some of the engineering problems that we talked about, uh, as well as finding relevant and exciting indications that have a clear unmet need. Well, there we are. That's a wrap. Ladies and gentlemen, today I've been speaking with Jonathan Solomon. He is the CEO and board member of Biomics. Jonathan, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you, Neil. Enjoyed it. Thank you for the great questions and interest. Thank you.